0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On our last podcast, NCBC senior fellow Marie Hilliard gave us a primer on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, henceforth Dobbs, a case that could have profound impact on abortion law in the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court hears oral arguments in this case on December 1st, 2021. While the Hilliard interview focused on legal and public policy issues, today we will focus on the scientific. As such, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Maureen Kondik to the podcast. Dr. Kondik is an Associate Professor of Neurobiology at the University of Utah School of Medicine, and her research focuses on the role of stem cells in development and regeneration. She is also an Associate Scholar of the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Our interview will focus on two primary topics. The first topic, and one that is really at the heart of the abortion debate, concerns a scientific perspective on when human life begins. The second topic, which is the subject of an amicus brief that Dr. Kondik wrote for the Dobbs case, focuses on when a preborn child exhibits consciousness and when it can experience pain. Dr. Maureen Kondik, welcome to Bioethics On Air.
1: Joe, I'm just thrilled to be here.
0: We're thrilled to have you as well. So our listeners know that uh, when we have a new guest on our podcast, which you are, a brand new guest, hopefully maybe not the first time, but or hopefully not the last time, I should say, um, I always ask new guests to please tell our listeners a bit about their background. So So Maureen, can you tell us a bit about your background, specifically your education, work experience leading up to your present position at the University of Utah?
1: Of course. So I was um, an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago, um, where I started out with a fascination with the brain. (laughs) Um, I actually did a a degree in psychology rather than biology, because the psychology program was a very flexible and very biologically oriented, sort of animal behavior oriented approach to, to psychology. So I think that grounded me pretty well in, in a broader appreciation as I went forward to University of California Berkeley for my PhD, and I narrowed my focus of interest down to cellular aspects of the development of the nervous system. Uh, I have focused for all my entire professional career on sensory neural development, uh, after I got my PhD uh, working in an insect model, I went to uh, something a little higher on the food chain, <laughs> something that eats insects, uh, actually a, a chicken embryo model, because chickens are um, a very long-standing animal model for human development. They, they um, have many things in common with, with human development, even though they're not mammals. Uh, about that time, I started teaching uh, human embryology. Uh, to to undergraduates and then later to medical students. I went on and did a postdoc at the University of Minnesota, again looking mostly uh, in tissue culture at aspects cellular aspects of neural behavior for embryonic, developing sensory neurons. I was appointed at the University of Utah as a uh, professor in 1997 and. Almost immediately started teaching in the medical school um, human embryology, <laughs> where. Uh,
0: surprise, surprise.
1: I continued to do that for, for many years, um, as well as continue to work on uh, more clinical aspects of, of neural development and neural regeneration. And I've been there ever since.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you've talked about this a little bit. Are, what, are, what are some of your responsibilities at the University of Utah besides the research, the teaching you do, or is that, is that primarily what you're doing there?
1: Recently, my, my professional responsibilities have taken a bit of a shift. Uh, I was appointed as the first ombudsman for the University of Utah about six years ago. And that has, has grown as a, <laughs> as a service activity to the university and to the community. Um, very much aside from my research interests, but, but I feel uh, a good balance because it's, it's an opportunity to make a really direct impact on the health of the community. Whereas research is such a long delay between what you're doing in the laboratory and anything that can possibly make a difference in people's lives, so so I find it a really compelling balance.
0: What is that? What do you do? What is that role? I, I'm not uh, exactly clear what that role is.
1: Well, um, the ombudsing is a very old uh, profession. Mm-hmm. It was established about 200 years ago uh, in Sweden when the king and the parliament wanted a neutral citizen to advise them on on policy. Um, okay. What it has evolved into um, over, over the decades has been essentially informal conflict resolution. So similar okay. to mediation perhaps, okay. um, but but largely working with individual people to help them identify um, what, what their concerns are, what the tools and resources available to them to address those concerns might look like, and helping them work through Okay, if you took this route, what would be the pros and the cons? How would how would that play out? And, and helping them to get to a resolution or a path forward that they that they're comfortable with. Hmm.
0: Very interesting, huh? Maury, tell us a bit about your work with the National Science Board, and also I'd like to hear a little bit about your work with the Pontifical Academy for Life.
1: <laughs> they're they're um, in some ways uh, very similar, and in some ways. <sighs> Very different. <laughs> so both of these boards are, are the academy and the board are um, are involved in interpreting science policy as part of a larger group of individuals who all have different areas of expertise. So starting with the National Science Board, the National Science Board was established when the National Science Foundation was established as a uh, governing board uh, charged with oversight of the National Science Foundation, and also with providing accurate scientific information to the president and to Congress, either upon their request or upon our own initiation. If we feel that there's something they they need to know about and we need to give them accurate information, that's part of our task. So uh, we are a group of 20, 24 people who come from various scientific disciplines. They're all Appointed by the president directly, their terms are about six years, so they um, overlap very often. Different administrations, and I have to say, it's been it's been quite an honor and uh, a great pleasure to work with this group of people. I I find them all amazingly accomplished, uh, very thoughtful and uh, brilliant <laughs> brilliant individuals. So so it's a, it's a it's a wonderful group, and they are. Surprisingly apolitical, really concerned with really? benefiting the country, benefiting the scientific enterprise in the country, and providing accurate scientific information. So that, this has really been quite an honor for me to be part of this, this august company. <laughs> um, similarly, the Pontifical Academy is uh, a much larger group, um, several hundred people from all over the world who are, again, appointed by the Pope to the Academy. And their function is to uh, provide accurate information to to the Vatican about a wide range of scientific issues. So mostly these are life scientists, so either physicians mm-hmm. um, or researchers such as myself, but also people who are theologians, uh, religious and uh some attorneys even.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Uh,
1: provide, oh, my goodness. Yes, a balanced a oh, no. perspective on, on some of the, <laughs> the more challenging, controversial um, issues facing facing not just uh, Catholics, but the world in general. So we've taken on a number of um, pretty tough issues, uh, palliative care, for example, yep. um, which which we've made a lot of progress in. And right now I'm – uh, working on as part of a group looking at the topic of human genome engineering. So with the advent of uh, new technologies in the last few years, most notably um, CRISPR-mediated gene editing, which greatly expands the power of this approach, uh, it also opens a lot of potentially quite disastrous and frightening doors so so yeah. we're we're oh, yeah. a group that's considering considering that that um, technology and trying to put it in a uh, a perspective that is both accurate and uh, accurate and and fair you know, not not either being overly cautious or overly overly pessimistic or overly optimistic <laughs>
0: Got it. All right, good. Well, let's let's move into the uh, into the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of, of the interview today. So, the first topic we're going to address is the question of when does human life begin. So, in your brief for the Dobbs case, you state that the Supreme Court's quote current approach to abortion is hamstrung by fifty year old presidents based on outdated, maybe even archaic science." Unquote. How is the science outdated?
1: Well, science is an ongoing endeavor, and 50 years is a very long time. <laughs> so right. we, oh, have, yeah. we have learned a tremendous amount um, since uh, particularly Roe v. Wade was, was originally decided, uh, where a component of that decision was the justices essentially saying nobody really knows when life begins. And if mm-hmm. science can't tell us an answer to that question, how could we as, as mere Supreme Court justices Dare to take it on, so we're just going to punt. <laughs>
0: we're not going right. to. We're
1: not going to adjudicate on this question at all, but we're going to look rather at the issue of um, when is there a compelling state's interest to protect uh, developing human life. And I think I think in the intervening period we've we've learned an awful lot about human embryology and. I honestly think that the answer to the question of when life begins is pretty much incontrovertible at this point. We know right. when life begins, and it begins at the instant of sperm egg fusion.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I, I, and I've always kind of wondered this about 1973. And, and, and feel free if you if you don't, you know, if if you don't know the answer to this question, but was there evidence, scientific evidence about when human life begins back in 1973 that it may have been controverted or is, I guess I'm trying to figure out is, is what the justices said, how accurate was that claim mm-hmm. that there's no, um, there's no consensus when life begins back in, well, 72 really, I guess is when they would have heard the case. And then when it came out in January of 73, just, I don't know if you have any comments on that.
1: I think, I think it's always a dangerous task to go back and look at through, <laughs> through the lens of modern, modern understanding.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: I think at the time, there were, there were, there was ample data that, from my perspective, would have resolved the case, the the question quite clearly in favor of what the current evidence also um, indicates. So even back in one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-two, I think there was strong scientific evidence uh, and longstanding scientific evidence dating back many decades, even prior to one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-two, that that life began at the instant of sperm infusion. fusion. However, at that time, there was a lot of f- sort of theological and f- philosophical controversies surrounding the notion of twinning that that raised doubts in many people's minds as mm-hmm. to um, when an individual human could come about. So, if at some point in early development you can start out with a single a single developing embryo and it can split into two, right? humans, both of whom had mature as independent uh, individuals, many people interpreted this as um, precluding the possibility that a unique individual human could exist until the potential for twinning was over. So I think the mm-hmm. main controversy about when does human life begins was, was based on this twinning argument a concern about human individuality rather than the onset of a, of a living human individual or organism.
0: Right. No, that's very helpful actually. So, So thank you for that. All right. So, so let's, let's talk about what our scientific knowledge today demonstrates about the beginning of human, about the beginning of human life. So in various writings you state, um, the following. Quote, the scientific basis for distinguishing when a new cell arises rests on two relatively simple criteria, differences in molecular composition, or what something is made of, and differences in behavior, unquote. All right. So with that in, with that in mind, with that quote in mind, um, some questions for you. So Maureen, at fertilization, sperm and egg fuse to make a single cell. We know that. How do scientists know whether this is a new cell or is it just a a modified gamete? Or some people will will just say a fertilized egg. How do we know that?
1: Um, Before I answer, can I revisit a prior question? Sure, absolutely. For anyone out there who is interested in the topic of twinning, I'm going to give a plug for a book I recently published on The Nature of Twinning in Humans.
0: Well, there you go.
1: So if you are who would like to learn something about twinning and A little bit about the historical context for how this played forward um, uh, over time. Uh, You can look at my book. It's called Untangling Twinning, published by uh, Notre Dame University Press.
0: I could put a link of that into the the show notes. So we'll do that.
1: Thank you. But to return to your question of um, how is it that we know that the cell that's formed as a consequence of sperm egg fusion is, is a new cell rather than simply a modified gamete. Well, right. we know uh, this, is, this is a common question in, in scientific investigation. We are often faced with making a judgment about whether we have formed a new cell in the laboratory or formed a new cell in an embryo, or perhaps whether it's just a modification or a different state of, of an existing cell. And that's where the two relatively simple criteria come come into play. Uh, When when a new cell comes into existence, it will be made of things that are different from the cells that give rise to it. So in the case of uh, the new one-celled embryo that comes into existence as a consequence of sperm egg fusion, that cell has a composition that is different from either sperm or egg. So all of the... uh, components that used to be present on the surface of the sperm and uniquely present on the surface of the sperm are now part of the outer surface of this new cell, changing what it's made out of. Similarly, on the inside, the, the cell used to have a uh, DNA that was only derived from the mother, and now it has half of its DNA derived from the father as well, which is a pretty significant change in what it's made of. Oh, yeah.
0: oh yes. <laughs> yes, it is.
1: That it is. Um, moreover, within seconds of sperm egg fusion, this new cell, the zygote, will initiate a sequence of molecular events, so sort of a cascade of, of uh, things taking place that represents a completely new direction for, for uh, this cell that's distinct from anything you ever see in a sperm or an egg. And moreover, it's very, uh, a very different path, a different trajectory than, than would make sense if you were still an egg cell. Mm-hmm. So the whole goal of being an egg is to find a sperm and fuse to it. But the entire point of this newly initiated set of behavior taken on by the zygote within seconds of sperm egg fusion is to block the ability of the zygote to fuse to any more sperm. So right. yep. whereas the entire raison d'etre of being an egg is, is to <laughs> is to meet up with a sperm and fuse to it. The very first act of the zygote is to recognize the function of an egg. So there's no credible way in which the product of sperm egg fusion can be viewed as a, as a modified gamete, as a fertilized egg, for example. It's a completely non-scientific way of looking at at, at the product of that process because it's clearly a new cell type.
0: Right. That's a great answer. I love that. Okay, so Maureen, with that in mind, all right, so we, we clearly have a new cell, but how do scientists know whether this is a new human being rather than just another human cell?
1: An excellent question, and one that has also a, a slightly more complicated answer, but <laughs> okay. um, in the same way that scientists can distinguish one cell type from another, we also have to make distinctions between what's a part of a organism and what's a whole organism, all by okay. itself. All so right. there are a number of ways that we can distinguish between cells, and something that's a immature stage of what will ultimately be a multicellular individual, such as a human being. And those criteria are pretty pretty unambiguous for distinguishing between cells that act entirely for themselves um, and developing organisms that act for the sake of the entity as a whole. So I think I, though many people will, you know, some people list 10 criteria, some people list 20 criteria. I think all of the criteria really can boil down to um, four general classes. So organisms are distinct from cells because organisms are comprised of parts. And all of those parts have different functions. But all of those functions only make sense as a whole. So all of the Mm -hmm. parts work together in order to support the health and survival Uh, and well-being of the thing as a whole. Uh, So that I would call integration, integration of the many parts of the organism to to make a a functioning unit. So the other criteria that I would say distinguishes an organism from a cell is the ability to, uh, to adapt to changing environmental circumstances such that the overall function of the organism remains healthy. So unlike cells, we as multicellular (laughs) organisms have ways of compensating for changes in oxygen or nutrition or temperature or other things so that our overall function remains constant and healthy. Organisms also are distinct from cells or groups of cells because they're able to repair damage to themselves in a way that restores the the wholeness of, of the entity so different organisms have different abilities to to regenerate or replace damaged or missing parts. But all of us have at least some ability to do that. And surprisingly, embryos do it amazingly well. (laughs) You can can deliver catastrophic wounds to embryos and shockingly, they they are able to regulate processes, repair those injuries. For example, the spinal cord of most mammalian embryos, if you transect it during embryonic life, completely repairs itself with no no lasting damage to to the individual once it's once it's uh mature really quite unlike what happens to to the mature spinal cord if it's right exactly so so there are changes over time for example and in particular embryonic stages appear to be much much better at at repairing injuries than we are once we become adults
0: i never knew that that's fascinating (laughs) It really
1: is the last criteria. So we have integration, we have adaptation, we have um, uh, the ability to to regenerate or repair injury. The other thing that is distinguishing of distinguishes embryos from cells is, or organisms from cells, is that organisms undergo development. They directly enter into a pattern of behavior. Uh, molecular behavior and cellular behavior that sequentially produces increasingly mature states of life for the kind of thing it is. So an embryo will immediately initiate a, a unique sequence of behavior and molecular events that can only be understood as a progress towards the next most mature state of that very kind of thing that it is. So the ability to undergo development is, is, I think, for multicellular organisms, such as us, the defining feature of an organism. Hmm.
0: Very interesting. Maureen, can you give us some examples of how a one-celled zygote, uh, how does it act like an organism?
1: <laughs> well, um, the immediate thing that the one-celled embryo or zygote does is to produce two cells. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Okay. Uh, and then those two cells will divide to produce four cells, and there is a growing body of evidence that even at the two-cell stage, so at the first sort of cellular event that the zygote produces, uh, there are differences in the developmental capabilities and the molecular composition of the two daughter cells that are generated, and certainly by the four-cell stage, there are there are pretty distinct differences between each of those four cells within the embryo so the very first act of the embryo isn't to do what a cell would do so cells just divide and produce copies of themselves they're right. like little Xerox machines <laughs> if you <laughs> the little clones of themselves just, so to speak. just make identical versions of themselves but uh, embryos actually enter into a pattern of producing different types of cells that have coordinated functions. So that criteria that I gave you as the very first one, the inter- that organisms are made of parts and they, those parts work together to support the health and maturation of, of the entity as a whole. That is the very first thing the zygote does is to start making parts. And those parts have coordinated functions, integrated functions that allow for uh, the embryo to become increasingly complex and, and to mature in a healthy
0: manner. So it sounds to me as if this is a pretty good argument for when human life begins. I mean, (laughs) it's, 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 that's, that's pretty clear. Um, I was wondering what, what's the implication of what you just said for abortion and in particularly the Dobbs case that the, the Supreme court will be, uh, will be hearing very soon.
1: I think, I think that the, the strong scientific evidence that human life begins at an identifiable point, the the fusion of the outer membranes of the sperm and the egg to generate a single celled human zygote. And that that zygote initiates a pattern of development immediately is a compelling answer to, to the question of when human life begins. That, that is objective, that is not based on opinion, that is not based on revelation or preference or any particular religious tradition. It's it's a factual observation that uh, that should inform the deliberations of the justices with respect to uh, the question of whether abortion is involves the destruction of a living human being.
0: Right. Yeah, good answer. This this kind of leads me to uh, a, a next question, which I, I recognize we're getting away from your area of expertise, and I, so I, I just want to I, I want to make that clear. But um, there are some, maybe many, uh, abortion supporters who will concede the human life argument, as you said, but will argue that an unborn child is not a, a person based on some characteristics uh, that they will. Subjectively defined. I'm thinking Peter Singer here with this sort of primitive self-awareness um, understanding. But in a 2012 article titled Science and the Politics of Personhood, you state the following quote, in the logic of those who want to assign personhood based on consciousness, no difference whatsoever can be observed between those who possess personhood and those who do not. The entity has acquired a new function based on the maturation of the underlying neuro anatomy. But the entity itself is not distinguishable from the non-human entity that preceded it, unquote. Sorry, I had a little problem with that. Now, Maureen, again, I know you're not a philosopher. You're not a theologian. You've already said that. But I was wondering if you could speak to the interplay between the biological understanding of life, which you just discussed, and the philosophical understanding of personhood.
1: It is is a tough question, because the word personhood has not only a a kind of common meaning that most of us Recognize other humans walking around as persons. It has a legal meaning, which is which is mm. um, far more restricted than than the common understanding of that term, and that it has various philosophical interpretations. Uh, one of which you mentioned the the tendency of people to assign value or personhood to to another individual based on based on some criteria that they have identified. So I'm often asked this question, and again, with the caveats that I'm neither a theologian nor (laughs) a philosopher, nor an attorney for that matter, uh, and cannot speak to the various uh, uh, implications of that term. In my experience, and in my own thinking, there are really only three ways that people assign value to, to another person. Either we assign value based on some aspect of what that individual can do, or what they look like. So if it looks like a human baby, then it is one. Or if it has the capability for consciousness, then it's a human. Or if it has the ability to survive independent of the mother, so it's now, people will term that viability, although clearly an embryo or a fetus that cannot survive independent of the mother is totally alive, but it's just not independently able to survive. So there are many different points. Peter Singer puts it at self-awareness, an event that in his mind takes place about 28, 30 days after birth. And all of these are arbitrary. They're they're all ways that we just look at a continuous process point your finger at some aspect of it and say, well, that's enough for me. Uh, That's one way, basing on form or function. The other way is basing on power. You're a person who has value if we as a society decide that you do. And I think both of these two ways are very, very problematic in my mind, because they undermine the essential concepts of freedom, justice, and equality that form the basis of Western society. So you can't point to a person and say, well, if you're handsome and um, intelligent and rich, i.e. you have these aspects of form and function that we value, you will have value. And everyone who didn't have those, what are they? Are they research subjects? Are they slaves? Are they food? We are appalled by that kind of a judgment. <laughs> We're appalled yeah. to think that we would actually restrict people's value and their rights based on, based on something that they can or can't do or can or don't look like. Um, right. so, so I reject form or function as a basis because it defies the notion of equality, that all humans should be treated equally under the law and have equal value. I reject the notion that those in power can decide who has value and who doesn't again, because of its arbitrariness and because of how it impacts our notion of justice. If, if it's all right for us as a society to segregate rights based on a consensus of those who are allowed to vote, how can we possibly object to any of the atrocities that happened in the last century? How can we object to the Nazis? Right. They, they has they elected Hitler and <laughs> they, yep. they supported yep. his policies and there should be nothing yep. wrong with them. If, if right. we really do believe there's nothing wrong with us deciding arbitrarily, because we have the authority to do so, who has rights and who has value and who doesn't. So the only other way remaining that I've encountered is you have rights because of the kind of thing you are. You have rights and you have value and you are a person simply because you are a human being and that satisfies the notion of justice it satisfies the notion of liberty that people are not able to impede your interests (laughs) simply because they choose to do so and it satisfies the notion of justice that that justice becomes grounded in the concept our rights are due to what we are right so in light of all of this i would say that the only viable notion of personhood to me is that persons are human beings and the answer to when you become a person is when do we have a human being and the answer to that is at the instant of sperm fusion
0: right well i'll tell you for for not being a philosopher or theologian that was a great answer
1: <laughs> well thank you <laughs> like i said i i not my first time around that question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Obviously not. Very well stated. Love that. Um, listeners, go back and, and listen to that part again because that, 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 there's some gold in there. Love that. All right. So let's uh, let's change gears and talk about the Amicus brief that you filed in the Dobbs case, and it's a brief that you filed in conjunction with the uh, with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. So in that brief, you're you're talking about fetal consciousness, and you, and we're going to talk a bit about fetal pain. But I, I want to start off by uh, having explained a little bit about um, 4D ultrasonography, uh, because that seems to have been a real game changer, particularly in, in more recent years. So Maureen, how has the development of 4D ultrasonography changed our understanding of human life and human development?
1: Oh, I think it has, it has truly been a revolutionizing kind of technology, because although people have been interested in what goes on in the womb for a very, very long time, we've had very limited tools for actually Mm -hmm. observing the life of the fetus. So we could listen to its heartbeat. We could, once they become a certain size, we could feel them moving about. We could rely on miscarriage um, or aborted fetuses to examine what's happening with their development and anatomy. But, but the actual behavior of the fetus was really opaque. We, we didn't right. have any way of seeing what fetuses were doing. So with the advent of um, ultrasonography, that opened a window into the womb. We were able to actually observe a fetus in in uh, in its natural environment <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. and see, see how yep. they responded to things. And as the technology became uh, more accurate with greater resolution, um, the 4D element of, of ultrasonography is the ability to construct um, a, a projection of the image in space. So it looks three-dimensional, but we can also observe over time, which is the fourth dimension. Um, and this, this uh, has enabled us to make much more sophisticated observations of how fetuses respond to input and what they're actually doing in the womb <laughs> um, right. yeah. with, with their time.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Do you know, um, I, And when did 4D ultrasonography really kind of take off? And I, and I asked the question because my daughter was born in 2000. So in 1999, we had, you know, the old kind of fuzzy mm-hmm. um, ultrasound that, you know, it was, it was kind of nice, but it was, you know, it was the old ultrasound. When did the, the technology really kind of, it, when did it really hit that we were able to to see f- uh, fetal development as we can see it today?
1: As we can see it today? You know, I am not a historian of uh, of ultrasonography. I know that, that okay. when I was pregnant, uh, they, it was not generally available even at a university medical school, which is where, where I delivered. Um you know, I still also had kind of the fuzzy, the fuzzy um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. flat images, but, but, uh, certainly within the last, uh, 10 years, it has become much more widely used in obstetrical. Right. So I think the technology certainly came about earlier than that, but didn't, uh, the machines were not widely available to, to, um, uh, obstetricians and gynecologists who were right. who were out there in the community until probably about ten years, I would imagine. Again, yeah. I'm not a historian, so
0: Right. Yeah. i just I'm just thinking because just a few weeks ago I had to have a, a surgical procedure on my tooth and the and the periodontist actually used 4D technology to do my tooth. And I said, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. And this is what they can do. And this is what they could do with fetal development now. It's 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 really, it's just amazing what we can do today. But anyway, so, so let's, let's get into the questions of, of conscience consciousness and pain. So uh, in terms of consciousness, uh, the brief that you wrote states this, quote, there's now clear evidence based on ultrasonograf- ultrasonographic observations of fetal expressions that fetuses as early as 12 weeks exhibit consciousness, intentional behavior, and that they actively discriminate among similar sensory experiences, unquote. Okay, so Maureen, how do fetuses exhibit consciousness as early as 12 weeks? How do they exhibit intentional behavior? And how do they discriminate among similar sensory experiences?
1: So all of those things are determined by very similar kinds of experiments. Okay. Given that we can now observe a fetus's movements and their facial expressions, with a high degree of accuracy, uh, we, we can compare how they respond to similar things and see if they notice that there's a difference. So this is a standard technique that's used for determining, for example, with young infants, when, when mm-hmm. they have the ability to perceive a difference or when they have a concept. <laughs> Piaget was famous for doing these kinds of experiments not only on his own children, but on other people's children. <laughs> um, where, where if you want to see if if an infant, for example, recognizes you put two balls on the table, you cover them up with a cloth, and then you sneak a third ball underneath and take the cloth off. Is the child surprised by that? Do they actually have the ability to understand number constancy, to to perceive that there's been a change in in the number of balls? present under the cloth. And you detect that by a change in their behavior, by the fact that they they startle or if you have a pacifier in their mouth, that they start sucking faster <laughs> because they recognize right. something yep. exciting is happening here <laughs> that they recognize as yep. different. So we can now do those same kinds of experiments with fetuses. We can we can determine that they um, will distinguish based on the changes in their behavior between between different kinds of sounds, different kinds of actions that the mother might take. And we can also, by examining their movements, for example, the movements of their hands and their legs, uh, get a sense of what's going on in their heads when they're doing this. Are they flailing around randomly or do they have some understanding of what it is they're, they're doing when they're moving? And are they planning their actions according to that understanding? So for example... Um, many of your listeners might be familiar with the the science of analyzing the movements of athletes, right? We will Mm -hmm. film them with high degree of accuracy and then, you know, we can take apart microsecond by microsecond, you know, what they're moving. Is their activity efficient? Are they, are they achieving the optimal performance that you would hope that they could achieve? We can kind of do the same thing with the fetus now and determine whether or not they're, Hand movements, for example, show intentionality. So if they're flailing, then there's no change in the speed of the movement until they impact something. If they swing their hand out and they have no intention to move their hand in any way, it's just a random behavior, um, then their hand is going to move at a constant speed until it hits something that stops it. But what you observe in fetuses is that when they're moving their hands, for example, towards the uterine wall that's exactly how it goes they they right. move it at a constant speed until it slams into something that stops it from moving but when they're moving their hands towards their faces they their hand will start out fast and then s- slow down and let achieve a much more accurate and gentler touch to their face than you would have predicted from the rate and direction of the hand movement at the beginning So this tells us that a fetus is intending to touch his face, that they're planning the action uh, and controlling it relative to the nature of the target. And that's Hmm. that's pretty strong evidence that that somebody's home
0: (laughs) in in the
1: planning of that behavior.
0: And this is only available because of the development of the, the 4d technologies that we talked about before. I, I
1: think it is. That's, that's a pretty fair assessment. I think the tool yeah. has now opened up uh, a lot of investigations that, that no one would have conceived of even trying because there was no means of actually right. making these kinds of observations. Yeah.
0: It's like the door has been unlocked and it's amazing. The things that we learn about, you know, the development process of preborn children. Yep. Crazy, Crazy. stuff love it. Anyway, so let's uh, let's change gears again and, and talk a bit about fetal pain, which may be a bit difficult um, for, for some people to hear. I know it makes me squirm when, when I was reading about it, but Maureen, um, some will assert uh, that there's a consensus that preborn children cannot experience pain until approximately 24 weeks gestation, which give or take right now is viability what is the rationale for this assertion? And is it a correct assertion?
1: Mm. It is an incorrect assertion. And okay. the rationale for it is how, how can one, how can one base the rationale for an inaccurate assertion? You, you, you base it in the authority of you who asserts it. <laughs> right. Right. I think, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. clearly, Uh, the brain develops over a very long period of time. And the region of the brain that is responsible for most of our more complicated neural activities, planning of actions, um, anticipating future events, memory, language, um, and and a a large number of other things, those, those functions are mediated by the circuitry that's present in the cortex, And I think for a very long time, people have just assumed that cortical connections or cortical circuitry, this very late developing circuitry that doesn't really connect to the rest of the nervous system until starting around 24 weeks, uh, is because it's so integral to these higher functions of, of the mind. It must also be integral to, to the experience of pain. Mm-hmm. So that assertion has been made many times, and uh, it has often been couched in as a consensus. Everyone knows. All neuroscientists think those those kinds of broad-sweeping statements. Right. However, uh, if you actually go and look at the literature, you find a very, very different, Picture. While well, you can find plenty of papers where neuroscientists will make that assertion, they don't make the assertion based on any evidence <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and in fact, okay. they, they ignore enormous bodies of evidence that contradict that assertion. Uh, enormous bodies of evidence that span very independent disciplines that that are that represent decades of study that are hard to argue against, particularly if you take them as a whole, that how is it we could come to so much independent evidence from completely separate lines of investigation that deny this assertion? And particularly when no one who makes the assertion has been able to float any evidence in support of it. Wow.
0: All right. Well, let's get into that. I want to hear a little bit about uh, some of that evidence. So in the brief, you offer 12 lines of evidence that counter this assertion that the cortex is necessary to experience pain. Now, we're not going to talk about all all 12 of them them in detail, but I want to identify two distinct groups and ask you to explain what the evidence indicates. So Nine lives, nine, nine lives, nine lines of evidence, quote, indicate that consciousness and feeling, including conscious suffering, do not depend on cortical circuitry and are instead meet, uh, medicated by subcortical brain networks, unquote. I think, I think it was. Maureen, again, I, I'm ter- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, as I, I realize, I, I read that incorrectly. So that the, the, the circuitry instead is mediated by subcortical brain networks. See, this, I'm having a difficult time reading quotes today. It's, it's a tough morning. But anyway, Maureen, what, what does this mean, and, and, and what's the significance of it?
1: Well, what it means is that if you want to make the argument or make the assertion that a fetus is incapable of experiencing pain until the nervous system all of the nervous system hooks up with the cortex. Yep. Then you have to deny these nine lines of independent evidence that indicate animals and humans can experience pain in a conscious way, independent of the cortex. So I'll just give you a few of the lines of evidence. Yeah, please do. Uh, there, were, there was a large body of work done predominantly in the 60s and 70s, where people were interested in what kinds of behaviors would persist in an animal if you simply removed its cortex. And the conclusions of all of those types of experiments are absolutely unambiguous. The animals without a cortex remain conscious and remain responsive to pain. So that really clearly shows us that that in animals that are quite similar to us, mammals, so dogs, cats, rats, mice. You don't need a cortex in order to be conscious or to experience pain. If you look at evolution, so now we're changing from experimental biology to a completely different field where there's very low likelihood of collusion among the scientists to come up with, with an answer that, that doesn't reflect their their perspective and their, their work. Evolutionary biology has also very clearly shown that animals that don't have cortical circuitry naturally, so chickens, fish, even octopuses, octopi, what's the plural of an octopus? I don't know. I
0: think it is octopi, but I I was (laughs) just thinking calamari because I like it.
1: (laughs) Are conscious and uh, are responsive to painful input. So, So again, arguing that while the cortex does many amazing and beautiful things, it does not appear to be necessary for consciousness and for a pain experience. Similarly, humans who, because of a birth defect, are born without a cortex or without the great majority of a cortex, those humans are nonetheless conscious and they remain responsive to pain. And so those are just three of the lines of evidence, but right. that the taken as a whole, these nine lines of evidence are from very different disciplines, very different approaches. The investigators were asking quite different questions when they conducted their experiments. And yet all of the evidence points strongly to the same conclusion. And that should carry a lot of weight in people's minds, because if you, if, you keep coming to the same place, it's hard for that place to be gotten to by mistake.
0: <laughs> yeah, very well said. So the the four remaining lines of evidence, quote, as you say in the brief, provide direct compelling evidence of the fetus's awareness of and sensitivity to painful stimuli, unquote. So Maureen, what does what do these lines of evidence demonstrate about the capacity of a preborn child to experience pain?
1: So these are lines of evidence that derive from direct observation of newborns and largely, largely premature infants. So babies who are born um, well before they they should have been born at term but therefore have a nervous system that's very immature and the same kind of nervous system that a fetus would possess in, in utero. So if you study the behavior of infants that are born prematurely, you see them responding to painful stimuli in, in a a very characteristic and, and believable manner that shows that they're conscious and aware of the fact that they are in pain. If you examine the physiologic response of both newborn infants, and also to some extent, we've been able to do this uh, for fetuses in utero, their their uh, overall system responds to painful events, uh, consistent with with those painful effects events having an effect on their body that that would be the same kind of response we would have <laughs> in res- and if we were if we were injured or hurt. Uh, consistent with those kinds of observations, professional anesthesiologists have weighed in on this, based on their expertise, their knowledge of pain, their their understanding of neural development. They they recommend pain relief for fetuses during fetal surgery uh, because it's the recommendation that's most consistent with the evidence as they as they see it.
0: Interesting, and obviously that has implications for the question of abortion and and you know when abortions are performed and everything else, which I'm not going to ask you about, but that's you know the the obvious implication for this, uh, Maureen. I'm wondering if you could tell me uh, what impact do you think the evidence that we've been discussing will have on the Supreme Court justices who will be ruling in Dobbs?
1: You know, I am not a legal expert, Joe, and yep. Um, yep. I. I would be loath to predict what what impact <laughs> this evidence might have. I think I think that uh, the evidence is very strong, and and in particular, recent evidence that we didn't speak to directly, but I'd like to point out to your listeners. Sure, uh, a couple of studies that have been done just this year in twenty twenty one have looked at by a group where the first author is called Bernardes uh, have looked at directly using ultrasound have looked at a fetus in utero who was undergoing surgery uh, and did a beautifully well-controlled experiment. So they used 40 ultrasound to film the face of, of the child. Um, they filmed it at rest when they were doing nothing just to get a baseline of what do, mm-hmm. what do fetuses do with their faces <laughs> when, when nothing is happening to them. Uh, Which is a
0: great question in itself.
1: An interesting question in of itself. Um, they filmed during a startling response, so a non-painful uh, stimulus was delivered to the fetus and uh, watched what when a fetus is simply surprised but not in pain, what their faces, what they do with their faces, and then watched when a painful event occurred. So when the when the surgeon injected anesthesia into the into the muscle of of the infant, so that would hurt the infant, what happened when that painful stimulus was delivered. Then they had three blinded observers who didn't know what they were looking at um, score the the films that they made using what's called a facial action coding system. So these are are, uh, systems that have been developed uh, for use in a lot of different situations to assess an individual's experience of pain. They, they are used for babies who can't communicate. They're used for uh, older adults, for example, who might have a language impairment uh, or be in an altered state of consciousness due to, due to brain damage or some kind of disease state uh, or simply due to old age, due to dementia and an inability or an inefficiency in using language to communicate their experiences. These facial coding facial action coding systems have also been applied to a wide range of animals dogs cats uh, various farm animals horses <laughs> and the shocking thing is how incredibly well conserved they are that certain kinds of gestures with your face uh, or the face of an animal reliably indicates that animal is or that human is experiencing pain so these are not just random gestures they're not they're not things that that don't mean anything, but they're a language, a form of communicating an experience of pain. And this this ability to use facial coding action or facial action coding systems, applying it to a fetus is, is really our first insight into the mind of the fetus, into what they're trying to tell us about their experience. And the results of these Bernardi studies are very strong. They show that fetuses use, communicate with their faces, uh, an experience of pain only when they are being jabbed with a needle and not when they're just hanging out or when they're surprised by something. Um, So the initial study that was published in January of 2021 looked at a fairly large number of fetuses undergoing in utero surgery. Um, and showed that the average age of the fetus was about 29 weeks. So it didn't speak to the question of whether the cortex was required because these were relatively old, old, older fetuses. But um, those results by the same group have now been expanded to a fetus at 21 weeks. And they show remarkable, I mean, easy to interpret pain-related facial gestures that are specific to when the fetus was experiencing pain. Mm. If you if you uh we, you may want to link for your readers to to those two Bernardi studies because if they have access to them either through their library or through through a local university they can actually look at the, the videos which are very compelling very very hard to to not be moved by um, the strength huh. of the evidence.
0: I will have to I'll have to try to find them and, and link them in the show notes. Wonderful. Very interesting. Very interesting things. Maureen, I'm going to ask you a question that you may or may not want to answer, and feel free not to answer it. But if you had five minutes alone with the Supreme Court justices, what would you say to them?
1: I think what I would like to say is the facts matter. And while the question of abortion is obviously very complicated and involves weighing of many different interests informing a decision based on the best available scientific evidence is i think critical to making a just and wise decision very
0: good again very very well stated before we uh, conclude i was just wondering uh, if uh, what besides this podcast um, what are the resources would you suggest for our listeners to help them learn more about in utero human development?
1: Hmm. You know, it's a complicated topic, and there are <laughs> of, of many very good websites that are mostly geared towards expectant mothers that go okay. over um, the the basics of, of human development. I know the Lozier Institute has put together a website called The Voyage of Life that, that could be one of those resources for your listeners. Um, I can again refer them to my twinning book if they have... Interest in that particular topic, um, so so those those would be some some places to look or get started.
0: Very good, Maureen. What uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today?
1: <laughs> oh, perhaps I would give your listeners the same advice I would give to the Supreme Court justices that, <laughs> that, uh, that <laughs> science, the scientific facts, actually do matter in this, and that not not to let the complexity of the issue be daunting because the ultimate question is the question of value is the question of when do we assign uh, rights when when do we believe a developing human is the holder of human rights and i think answering that is is sometimes the answers are challenging in the sense of yeah. they may they may have implications that make make it difficult for us to sit comfortably with them. But there are only so many ways to answer that question. Yeah.
0: Dr. Maureen Kondik, thank you for a fantastic interview. This was great. And thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air.
1: I, it was a pleasure to, to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications. Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zayla. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.